Lord, that it would be the authority of your word that would convict us through the power of the Holy Spirit this morning. And Lord, that we'd leave here this morning more in love with you, more desiring to do your will. God's people said, Amen. Good morning. Thank you, Chris. Welcome back. Well, we have uh, been marching through Genesis for 11 months. We uh, started in Genesis in February of 2009. Pastor Chris finished up in chapter 20 last week. And we're going to take a pause, a four-week pause. And we're going to go through a sermon series called The Word and Power Church. And the reason that we decided to do this is, is several fold. One is, is just to, just to give you a glimpse as, as to what the Lord has been telling us as a leadership team as what he has for us in 2010, what we believe he has for us, and over the next five years. And at the very top of that list is we want to be a church body that declares our dependence upon the Lord through the vehicle of prayer. And I know, uh, me for one, I've got a lot to learn on the subject of prayer. And the last, uh, I don't know, week and a half, for me it's been like drinking from a fire hose. And I told a couple of my friends and fellow pastors that the Lord has me messed up right now. Messed up in a good way. Because he's blowing apart paradigms that I've had in my mind as far as what it looks like to be a prayer warrior, what it looks like to have intimacy with the Lord. So today we're starting a four-week series called the Word Empowered Church. And today we're going to look at the first church in Acts. We're going to examine Acts 1 and 2. Next week we're going to take a look at the vision of Windsor Community Church and what the Lord's called us to. In the last two Sundays of the month, we'll take a look at prayer. We'll deep dive into prayer. We'll look at the how, the why, and the what of prayer. And if you're not in a community group, can I suggest that for the month of February, if, if no more, that you hook up with the community group, because we are all going to be paddling in the same direction, going even deeper, learning what the Lord has for us in the way of intimacy and how he desires a deeper relationship that every one of us have right now. And we're going to learn more about prayer in community groups. So maybe, who's a community group leader? Would you stand up? Jeff, John, Dean, Kevin, and myself. If you're not in a community group and you'd like to know more about when these, uh, these families meet together and more about what we're doing in February, talk to one of us, if you would. I think you'll really... Enjoy the time. This is the second Sunday of the New Year. Happy New Year. Second Sunday. And New Year's are wrought with New Year's resolutions. And I, for one, am a New Year's resolution kind of guy. I'm a goal setter. I'm a planner to a fault. And oftentimes when you know goal setters and planners, oftentimes we have a tendency to operate in the flesh. I love the turning of the calendar. I love being able to look back on the old year, thank the Lord for what he's done, examine areas of my life where I had not totally surrendered, and look forward to a fresh start on January 1. It's kind of like the 24-hour deal. I love it. His mercies are new every day. His mercies are new every year. And if I'm not careful, I can spend a lot of time setting goals that the Lord hasn't necessarily ordained. A lot of the goals that I set are based on my experience or based on my upbringing. A lot of the goals that all of you set are based on what you've heard all your life. In my family, I grew up with seven kids, and we're all type A competitive. 
And a lot of the goals that I set have to do with achievement. Back when I was in the investment business, it was achieving, was making as much money as I could. Not necessarily to honor the Lord, but for pride and for puffed up, for competition. A lot of my goals I set are for, for, for to be an athlete. I know you'd never know that, would you? The athlete. But I want to get stronger. And I want to be more fit. And I, sometimes I'll ask myself, why? Well, it's because of, of what I've been told and what others have expected of me over the years. And I bet if you examine the goals that you set, a lot of those goals are based on what other people have told you who you should be. And those goals haven't been set based on what the Lord has said. And oftentimes we don't think about setting goals in the context of prayer. Planning and goals are good. If you're not a, a, a planner or a goal setter, try it. Try it. Ultimately, our goals and our plans should be to honor the Lord, to glorify Him and to honor Him. In Proverbs 16.3, it says, Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. We were at some friend's house for dinner a couple weeks ago, and this friend shared with us a template for setting goals. And it really stuck. And it was, uh, now don't throw stuff at me or don't send me emails because it's, 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 it's a little bit out of context, but it is a beautiful template. It's out of Luke 2.52, and it says this, that Jesus grew in stature, he grew in wisdom, he grew in favor with God and favor with man. Think about that in the way of setting your goals. Stature, physical goals. This body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are to be stewards of our bodies. Wisdom. God gave us a brain, and we need to exercise that brain. However, most Christians in this country, we exercise our brains with things that do not edify our bodies. We bring a lot of stuff into our head that does not necessarily make us love Jesus in a deeper way. In favor with God, how can we grow deeper in our relationships with the Lord? And in favor with man. Nancy and I have talked about who we want to spend time with this year. You know, this is a church of about 250 people. We've got neighbors on all sides of us. All of us only have the bandwidth for only so many relationships, deep relationships. And who is it that you really want to spend time with? Are you being discipled by anybody? Is there anybody that is discipling you? Find somebody, ladies, men, kids, to disciple you. Well, as individuals set goals and evaluate the past year and plan for the new, churches should do the same. Does that sound weird? Churches should plan. It sounds kind of weird to me because, because I come from a paradigm that planning is more from a corporate mentality. And the church shouldn't be a corporate institution. In fact, the church, and I'm going to refer to the church a lot today, think of it not in terms of building, think of it not in terms of organization, think of it in terms of an of, of a, uh, organism, okay, of, a, of, a, of us, the people. It's not the institution, it's not even organization, but a church should plan. And our leadership team gets together once a year. In fact, we meet every month, but once a year we get together for strategic planning. And it's a neat time. We get together and we spend about three quarters of the day together. And we thank the Lord for what He did in the last year. We thank the Lord for what He's done in all of your lives. We thank Him for protecting this church in spite of us. 
We thank Him for the many gifts that the Lord has brought into this place. And then we look back and say, God, what is it that you want us to shore up in this ministry? What do you have for us in 2010? As leadership, what are we holding back from you? What are we holding too tight to? What are we not trusting you for? In what areas does the body need to grow? You see, it says in both Ephesians and in Colossians that the the job of the pastors, the job of the pastors is to mature the body. That's our job. And there's times where I don't think we do it too well, honestly. And as, as I look around this room right now, I see a lot of dear brothers and sisters. Dear brothers and sisters that I have the privilege of walking arm in arm with. We get to walk with the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. And someday, we're going to stand before the Lord. And we're going to hear those beautiful words. Well done, my good and faithful servant. In the meantime, there's something called the sanctification process. And God is in control of that sanctification process, but He uses the church. He uses the church. And the reason that we're here on earth today as Christians... We're going to learn about that today as we look at Acts 1 and 2. You know, we're all prone to look at past experience and planning, and the church is no exception to that. Me, I've got a paradigm of what church is supposed to look like. The paradigm's changed over the years, but when I was a young man, what I thought church was supposed to look like is that every every church building was to have pews, was to have some scary guy with a robe that was really old, Smelly incense, women with flat cardboard things on their head. As I grew up, I'm still growing up, but as I got older, I've done a lot of reading of books. I love reading. I don't know if you know this about me. I love reading on church strategy. Sit down. Church strategy. I love reading about that. And I've read several books this year, one called It, IT, another called Focus. I've been influenced by the reading of books. I've been influenced by visiting churches. There are times when Nancy and I don't have responsibilities on Sunday morning. And we will sneak out and we will go to another church. Sit down. And we'll do it out of town a lot of times. We love worshiping with the larger body of Christ. And when we're there worshiping, and we can worship in all kinds of churches, and oftentimes we'll pick churches that are different maybe than the, than the ecclesiology that we have here, just because we want to experience some of that. And oftentimes we'll come out of there with a handful of, of ideas, different ways to do community group, neat ways that the service was done, different ways to disciple people. Another way that my paradigm for church has been shaped is by listening to other passionate Christians and pastors. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. We're part of the Crossway Chapel Network of Churches. We're one of seven churches. And it is full, these churches are full of leadership that are sold out for the gospel. And I love spending time with these guys and gals as we get together with couples because we learn so much about the local church. A lot of what happens at Windsor Community Church, I don't know that Dean, Chris, and I Well, I'll speak for myself. I don't know if I've ever had an original idea. No original ideas. 
So a lot of things that we learn are through other passionate pastors and Christians. I get together every Thursday morning with another pastor in Windsor, a guy that's a pastor of a church in Windsor, and I learn so much from this godly man. Sometimes, when I want an answer, I'll Google it. You can Google spiritual stuff. So I Googled a couple things yesterday, just for illustration purposes. I Googled church growth strategies. You know how many results there were? 23 million! That's a lot of strategy. I Googled spiritual growth. You know, that can mean a lot of different things. You know how many results there were? 5 million. Kind of sad, really, that there's more results on church strategy than there is spiritual growth, isn't it? Another one. What did I Google? Oh, the Christian church. The Christian church. In the first three or four lines, I don't even know how they showed up in the Christian church. But there's 43 million results for Christian church. So we've got all kinds of resources today in this century to understand how to grow the church. But there's not one of them that's worth its salt alone. Not one of them. Because the only place to, or let me say this, the first place to look is right here. Because God has given us everything we need to develop an ecclesiology. Everything we need to know how to disciple. Everything we need to know how to grow in the love of the Lord. Many of you have an opinion of what church should look like based on your paradigms and your experience. And I could tell as I was communicating with Nancy this morning that I can tell you that when she yawns or when she kind of gets a, a twitch that I've said something wrong. And she twitched a lot this morning. So experience is good. God has given us unique upbringings, particularly you, you kids, you young people. You give, they've, he's given you the exact parents for all of us that we need. And some of us have had a rotten childhood. Some of you have had a rotten childhood. But those experiences have shaped you, haven't they? They have shaped you for better or for worse because God uses all things for good for those he loves and calls according to his purpose. But we shouldn't rely only on our experiences. Oftentimes we come to church with paradigms. We come into the church, the body of Christ, the local church, Windsor Community Church, Church on the Ancient Path, Mountain View, you call We come with paradigms and we want to mold and shape that church based on our past experience and not based on this. Now, I've got to tell you, this church, Windsor Community Church, has been molded and shaped by a lot of this, but also by a lot of the unique giftedness that you all bring. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. And we want to do more and more of that in this church, is that we want to hear from the Lord on what He wants for us as a body of believers. And you know how we hear from the Lord? From the Lord? We go up to the mountain. No, we don't. We get on our knees and we listen to the Lord through you all as well. Because the same Holy Spirit that abides, that lives in Chris and Dean and myself, lives in each of you that have surrendered your life to Jesus. And we want to know over time where we are missing the mark. But we want to know where we're missing the mark based on this, not necessarily based on what happened in your local town 20... Can I say this? Because she's twitching. There's... Um, I haven't heard any of this lately. I haven't heard any of this at all. So this is not an admonishment at all. But it, it's... I want to give the cool factor that this church has been formed by this and by the unique body parts that the Lord has brought here. Okay? 
Are you okay, honey? You're doing fine. I love you. Before we can ever start to define what's important in a church, we need to know what our purpose is or what our mission is. We need to understand what our mission is and what our purpose is. In order to do that, we need only one source, God's Word. God's Word will also show us how we should operate and how we should behave as a church. An organism. A body of believers. Let's take a look at the first church, the example, the template God gave us. We're going to be in Acts chapter 1 and 2. We're not going to go through it verse by verse, but we're just going to, we're going to bounce around a little bit. So the book of Acts, first of all, let's do a quick walk through biblical history because we're just plopping into Acts with no context at all. And first of all, is we need to understand how the church was formed. And as we look back to Genesis 3, we see that, if you remember, that's when, when sin infected mankind, every person on the planet. It's where Adam and Eve sinned. It's where separation from God came. It says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we know from early on in God's word that we're all sinners in need of a Savior. We also saw in Genesis 3.15 a promise of hope. We saw the consequences for sin, but we also saw God's mercy. Where he said that Eve's offspring, the woman's offspring, would come and crush the serpent's head. And that this sickness that we had that was going to kill us, that was going to separate us for eternity, that God put a plan in place after the first sin. We see that we have a merciful God who has a passion for holiness. You see, God can't, He doesn't tolerate sin. He doesn't tolerate sin. And we saw it in the garden, but we also saw His mercy. We saw that that He separated mankind from Himself, but we saw that He also gave a way for salvation. We saw it in Genesis 6 with Noah's Ark. We saw that, that every thought and intention of man's heart was wicked, was evil. God had to deal with that. Yet He left the Ark wide open. That door was wide open for anybody that wanted to take God at face value, to put their faith in Him. The only takers were Noah and his family. And that was God's mercy there because it kept the remnant, it kept the seed alive that the one who was going to save us, reconcile to the Father, was going to come from. We saw it in Genesis 19. Chris taught on it a couple weeks ago with Sodom. We saw that, that God had to deal with the wickedness. But we also saw that He saved the righteous. That's the way God operates. We see in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of Jesus is eternal life. The wages of sin is death. We see in the New Testament the promised Redeemer, the Messiah. He's come. The promised Messiah has come. Here we are in Acts. Christ has died He's risen. He walked on the earth for 40 days after, his, after rising from the dead, and he ascended into heaven. And that's where we find ourselves in Acts right now, actually just before he ascended. Let's take a look at Acts chapter 1, and we're going to read all the way through uh, verse 11. In the first book, O Theopolis, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Acts is the second book of Luke. It's the second book of Luke. Luke was the Acts of Jesus. 
It really documented Jesus' life here on earth. Acts means literally the acts of the apostles, or better said, the act of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. That's the best definition I've heard. It's the acts of the Holy Spirit through the, through the apostles. So in the first book, O Theopolis, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. Remember that. Before he ascended, he told the disciples to go to Jerusalem and stay there. But wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Basically what he's telling them is relax. I've got a plan for you. I've got a mission. And it's, it's not for you to know when I'm going to come and establish my permanent kingdom. The only thing you need to know is the mission that I have for you. And here it comes in verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We see this same mission in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, where he says, Go therefore and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Again, basically he's saying, he's coming back. He's coming back, but you don't know when. And in the meantime, you've got a mission. You've got work to do. And you're going to do this work in the power of the Holy Spirit, not in the flesh. John 17 is the high priestly prayer. It's, it's Jesus crying out to the Father before Judas betrays him. And this is what Christ says in John 17, 18. He says, Father, as you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. That's our mission. Our mission as believers are to be in the world not separated from it. The scripture says be in the world, but not be of it. Not to partake and practice the things of the world, but to be in it. For how do we fulfill the mission without being in the world? Verses 12 to 26, we're not going to read it, but what's going on there is after the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit ascends on them, they now have the power, they stay in the upper room and they pray, And then they read scripture, and as they're reading scripture, the Holy Spirit prompts them that they need another apostle. They now only have 11 apostles. One apostle, Judas, of course, spilled his guts, so to speak. And they needed to replace him. And they had two men to choose from. And they prayed to the Lord and asked for discernment, saying, Lord, 
Who do you want to be the twelfth apostle? The Lord said, Matthias. And guess what they did? They prayed again. So after the Holy Spirit came upon them, the first thing they did is they prayed and they prayed. They spent time in God's word and they prayed. Would you look at chapter 2 with me for a little bit? After the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they prayed, they spent time in the Word. They left the upper room, and there were masses of Jews. And this is how these Jews are described in verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout from every nation under heaven. These were religious people. These were people that knew the Bible. These were people that were waiting for the Messiah. And then Peter goes into a long sermon that ends in verse 41. But if we're going to pick it up in verse 36 and take a look at how Peter ended that sermon, because it is important. And Peter says this to the devout men and women from every nation under heaven. Peter says this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He has made him Lord and Christ. He has made him God and Messiah. That in fact, Jesus was the Messiah that they were waiting for. In Romans 10.9 it says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. John 14.6 says, uh, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me but through the Father. Why is this important? And why am I even taking time to go through this this morning when there's 66 books of the Bible to go through and we chose this one for this Sunday? It's because salvation comes through Jesus. I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but the church in America doesn't get it. Salvation comes through Jesus alone. Salvation does not come from arguing creationism. I want to debate that with other believers. But salvation comes from Jesus alone. Salvation does not come from from imposing our morality on people. This is the first sermon in the New Testament. And Peter knows what will save. And that that is the message of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, and the gospel of repentance. Because it's not just enough to believe that Jesus is God. Sound heretical? The demons believe that Jesus is God and they shake. We need to confess that Jesus is Lord, that we are sinners in need of a Savior, that He died, rose again, ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father. And we say, Lord, I'm tired of doing it my own way. I can't do it anymore. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and I repent and I follow you. Verse 37. Get this. It is a beautiful verse. It is a beautiful verse. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Are those the greatest words in the planet? They just heard the gospel. They're devout religious men and women. And they said, brothers, they're calling Peter brother because he's a Jewish brother. How shall we respond to this? 
We see the same thing in 1 Peter 3.15. Folks, that's our goal. Our goal is not to save people. And that's a good thing because we can't. Just a side note, and we're going to get into this in a couple of weeks, but I did, for me, an exhaustive study on prayer. And I was telling a few buddies this, that as I looked through the epistles, that Paul rarely, in fact, I only found one place, he rarely prayed for the lost. Now, it's good to pray for the lost. We're, we're going to do a lot of praying for the lost. When I say lost, I hope I'm not demeaning anybody. Lost simply means somebody that has yet to be found by Christ. Okay? But that what, what Paul prays for is boldness for believers to share the gospel. That's what Paul prays for. And he asked for prayer for himself that I might be bold in sharing the gospel. That I might know when to open my mouth and when to shut my mouth. And we're going to dig into that a little bit deeper. Because I know it's something that I want to hear more of. And, and for some of you, you're going, boy, Hardy. I mean, big revelation there. For me, you know, we pray for neighbors, Nancy and I do all the time. All the time. And what dawned on me is that I mean, there's only so many hours a day. And there's only so many people I can pray for. Why am I praying for a particular family if I don't love them enough to spend time with them? You know? I mean, how can I pray for, for, for M and C across the street if I don't even spend any time with them so that they can have the opportunity to hear the gospel? The Word says that people are saved by the Word and hearing by the Word of God. They're saved by the Word and hearing by the Word of God. They've got to hear it. Let's continue in um, verse 38. Peter's response to them. Repent. He didn't say, okay, let's uh, pray this after me. He said, repent. He said, repent. He said, believe that Jesus is Lord, that He died for your sins and that you're a sinner and turn from your old ways and follow Christ. Peter's response in verse 38 is repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is key. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit at salvation because nobody can be a Christian and walk in obedience without the power of the Holy Spirit because if we're doing it without the power of the Holy Spirit, we're doing it in the strength of the flesh and we're either not saved or we're going to fail every time. Amen? It's got to be in the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 39. For the promise is for you and all your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. To those who received the word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and, and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had a need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. 
Is that an amazing passage of Scripture? You know, sometimes I read it and I think, yeah, 2,000 years ago, that could never happen here. I've got to tell you, brothers and sisters, it's happening all over the world today. It's happening all over the world today. It's happening in India. It's happening in Iraq. It's happening in Nigeria. It's happening all over the world where tens of thousands of people are being saved. And thousands of people in, in one day are being saved. You know, they rejoice in heaven over one. The angels rejoice when one person comes to Christ. And you know what? I can't manufacture salvation and nor can you. But I know God's heart. And His heart is that He doesn't want anybody to perish. And His heart is is that we would implore Him to save people. That we would beg Him for lives. And that we wouldn't stop there, that we would beg Him for boldness to proclaim the gospel at the risk of relationships, at the risk of finances, at the risk of being ostracized by family, by neighbors, maybe those in our own church. Let's take a look at the new church that was just formed. 3,000 new members. You've got a good nucleus for a building campaign there. Let's take a look at what the new church was devoted to. The first church, what were they devoted to? First and foremost, they were devoted to the Word. The Word of God was their final authority. Their final authority. It says in the first part of verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And the primary reason that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching is that the the apostles had spent time with Jesus and they knew the word well, and they were walking in the Spirit. We see in Acts 6-4 that the apostles were a little bit frustrated because they were doing lots of work. They called it table cleaning, and they didn't have time for the ministry that the Lord had called them to. And it says in Acts 6-4, the apostle says, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Wouldn't you like to be part of a church where the leadership is devoted to prayer in the ministry of the word? That's what we'd be devoted to. Psalm 119.15, the psalmist says, I meditate on your precepts and I consider your ways. Matthew 4.4, Jesus says, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's a picture of feasting on God's word. And when we have a relationship with Jesus, when we're walking with him in intimacy, we have a hunger for his word. And we live in a society right now where it's hard to keep that hunger. It's hard for me to keep that, that hunger. I gotta to acknowledge to you as one of your pastors. It's hard. Because there's so many distractions. But there's only one food, that's the Word of God. They were also devoted to prayer. We see it in verse 42, 43, and 47. They were devoted to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And then awe came upon every soul. And they were also praising God. Can you imagine? These people just experienced lots of signs and wonders. We most likely don't have that luxury here in Windsor, Colorado. But all those same signs and wonders were documented right here. The creator of the universe came and walked a sinless life. He died and rose again. That should throw us to our knees, longing for a deeper, more intimate relationship. Prayer is going to be a big focus. The last two Sundays, we're going to teach on prayer. In community groups in February, we're going to pray. 
we're going to pray. And you know what? I don't fully understand the power of the Holy Spirit. But I do know He can affect change in my life. I know that He can bring to completion the work that He's begun in me. I know that He can continue to rub off the rough edges. I know that He can make me more love with Himself. And I know that the veil has been rendered. That we've got access to the most holy of holy places, the throne of grace. And that we can approach it boldly through the power of the Holy Spirit. They were also devoted to fellowship. They were devoted to fellowship. It says in verses 44 through 46, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. You know what? This church is characterized by those verses. This church is characterized by those verses. And I praise the Lord for each of you. This is the most generous church on the planet. You're generous with your finances. We don't often get to experience what we experienced a couple weeks ago when Nancy was sick. And just see the outpouring of you all with food and time and house cleaning and the whole shebang. So this is a church that is devoted to fellowship like none on the planet. Like none on the planet. I praise the Lord for you all. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to the household of faith. Let's not forget to do good to everyone, though. They were devoted to their mission. Verse 47, the new church, the first church was devoted to their mission. You remember what their mission was? To make witnesses, or to, to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, the ends of the earth. To be witnesses, to make disciples, that's their mission. And they were devoted to their mission. In verse 47 it says that they were having favor with all people. Can you imagine? I'm afraid that the church in America, mainly through through the media, that we do not have favor with all of mankind as Christians. And most of the mockery that we get, we deserve. We deserve it. We out and out deserve it. And in 2010, I'm asking the Lord to show me how I can be true to His Word, how I can walk in the Spirit, how I can fellowship with my brothers and sisters, and how I can love people that are in the world, people that that don't look like us, that have habits that are deploring. Last thing they were committed to was growing the church. They were growing the church. As you look at the epistles, you look at Ephesus, you look at Philippians, you look at First and Second Thessalonians, those were all churches. The church of Thessalonica, the church of Philippi, the church of Ephesus, those were all churches that were started in Paul's missionary journeys. That's documented in the book of Acts. The first church was a church planting church. They weren't a church that it was us four and no more. That they would grow and they'd send people out. And that's a, a, that's a core value at Windsor Community Church that we're going to talk more about. I want to finish on this. What is our mission at Windsor Community Church? Our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. That includes discipleship for every one of us. It also includes reaching people with the best news that this world's ever known. We desire to be a praying church full of, 
fully dependent on the Holy Spirit and governed by the authority of God's Word. As we've talked about our core values in the past, there's been something missing. There's been something missing. And that is full dependence. Holy Spirit-powered and fully dependent. Holy Spirit-powered and fully dependent. I love our core values. The core values are what we're called to. It's what makes us unique. Intimacy with the Lord. We want to not just preach the Word. We want to encourage you to encounter God in the Word. The living God to encounter Him in the Word. Community with believers. Relationship with outsiders, those who have yet to come to Christ. Passionate service both in the church and outside this church. And multiplication of our ministries and churches. Next week, we're going to take a deeper look at the core values. We're going to look at our vision for 2010, which has a lot of prayer in it. In the last two weeks of the month, we're going to deep dive into prayer. Let's pray. God, we just uh, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord Jesus, we praise you. We thank you that you came to seek and save the lost. We thank you that you ascended into heaven. We thank you that you left the great deposit, the promise of your return, the Holy Spirit, that gives us the power to overcome, the power to understand, the power to love, the power to walk as you called us to walk, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Lord, I just uh, pray that as we uh, worship you in song, that you would receive our praises. Lord, that you would just effect change in each of our hearts, all for your glory.